Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and my guest today is Lloyd Danzig. Lloyd is the founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors amongst many, many other things. But we are here to talk about Sharp and we are here to talk about the impact of AI, machine learning, what he does for startups in the gambling, in the sports betting, in the fantasy sports and the esports space. Lloyd is chock full of information. So this was an absolute blast to get to learn how he helps startups, what he does for them and some of the ways that he can see if a company or if a business is going to be viable. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Lloyd Danzig. Welcome to the For the Love of Sports podcast. My name is Michael Raziel. Today, I have Lloyd Danzig with me. He's the chairman and founder of Iced AI. He's the founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors, as well as the co-host of the AI Experience podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Lloyd. I appreciate it. It's uh, great to be here, Mike. I've uh, talked to recently just by way of networking a number of different guests that you've had on. Uh, everyone seems to, to speak very highly of you, so really looking forward to the conversation. I am happy that I can help them. I hopefully can help you. And if there's anyone in that list that you'd like to chat with, uh, hopefully they thought as highly of me as those other guests did, and I could potentially introduce you to them. But until then, we'll get there. Lloyd, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Oh, wow. Um, I think it's the combination of the camaraderie and competition that it fosters and the way in which whether you're playing or rooting or whatever betting uh that you can experience both of those at the same time and there's not many other areas in life where where you can do that where you can genuinely respect your opponent for what an incredible competitor they are really hate their guts and and almost want them to just meet some terrible fate within the sport, but then outside of it again, uh, and I'm reminded, you know, we're all watching the Michael Jordan documentary these days. You, you look at a guy like him and you can only hate him because how good he is because of how hard he works. And uh, only sports to me really gets people to work as hard as someone has to work to be good at, or to be as good as Michael Jordan was at playing basketball. Uh, and, and so, you know, whether it's, the camaraderie and competition among friends, among fan bases, cities, states, countries. Uh, I, I just love it and, and love the the memories that you can build off of it and experiences that you can share around it. There's there's really nothing like it, right? I mean, sports, you know, fan is short for fanatic, right? It's just one of those things where we can get crazy. And of course, as you say, we don't root for anyone's ill will outside of the game. But if it happens inside of the game, sometimes we're going to be just fine with it. So I completely agree. There's really nothing like that emotion, that engagement with yourself, with your fans, with the opponent. Um, and I also like that you brought up betting. Sometimes the opponent is the house, right? Sometimes the opponent is Vegas and we have, we want to take their money in any way, shape or form. And I think that's, uh, you know, something that you and I are going to be speaking 
a little bit about. So uh, one other thing I do, I only listed a couple of the things that you do. <laughs> there are many, many more. So I'm curious. My second question to you is how many hours do you have in a day? Um, I mean, if you ask me how many hours of a week I work, it would be a tough question to answer because at first I would say something like, well, just however many hours I'm awake. But then a couple of my friends would come and chime in and say that they've seen me online on PlayStation playing some Call of Duty and playing some Madden. And I would say that they're right and that what I think I have done, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, just over a lot of hard work, is become very, very good at compartmentalizing things and multitasking when I need to. So yes, I do love playing, uh, you know, Madden and Call of Duty and, and FIFA, but I pretty much only play when I am somehow being productive in some other way. If there's a podcast that I need to listen to because it has information that I need to know, or there is any sort of information that I need to, you know, learn or, you know, somehow consume that can be done audibly, or in fact has to be done audibly. That is the kind of thing I'll pair with a video game because I'm at the point where doing one thing at a time is really almost never enough. Like it, it too is kind of a minimum. It's I have all my screens and I, and I like to do a lot of different things. So I don't really know how to answer your question, but the way that I've been able to do a lot of different things is really figure out how to multitask and compartmentalize. You know, I don't sit with my email inbox open all day. If something very time sensitive comes in, I'll know and answer it. But otherwise, you know, I do like 30 minutes of email answering in the morning and 30 in the evening and just do it, you know, kind of rapid fire. The other thing, though, and this is something I'm fortunate to have and hopefully you feel this way as well, is, you know, it sounds so cliche to say something like you find a job doing what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But of course, it's hard to compare working at something that feels like work for 100 hours a week versus having conversations and doing things that you would almost do for free. Uh, and the that happens to have commercial opportunities. So it's a hard question to answer, but yes, I do spend an incredibly large number of hours on electronic devices. My screen time alerts at the end of each week on my iPhone are very scary, uh, but I love it. I, I really do enjoy pretty much every minute of it. And it sounds like you hit the jackpot, man. I mean, I think it's very important for people to actually find something they enjoy doing. It doesn't happen to everyone. Uh, you know, I listen to my parents and, you know, God bless them. They're incredible people and they've done everything they can for me, for my brother. But at the same time, I hear them talk about work. And it's like, guys, just sell your house. Go do something you actually want to do. You don't, you know, what are you doing? So I'm, it's always very interesting to me. And, you know, kudos. Keep going. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I look, I, I, I spend uh, a lot of my multitasking time uh, browsing Reddit and checking random forums. And the reason I do that, obviously, I'm not unique in that. It's like the sixth most popular website in the world. But I love Reddit because, first of all, everyone's vote carries equal weight. So Kim Kardashian, you know, cannot promote anything any more than someone else can. Um, and with that, comes not necessarily a guarantee that you get the best information, but you certainly have a guarantee that the things that raise toward the top are more something than the things mm -hmm. that don't. Whether those are like true or controversial or exciting or engaging or offensive, like that's for other people to decide, but there clearly is some sort of objective wisdom of the crowds that you get when people start voting. 
And so one of the things I like checking out is, you know, how are people using memes these days to express things? I get such a kick out of people who talk about like AP biology tests and complaining about them through memes because that's just not a forum that, you know, I used. And unfortunately, this doesn't really have a happy ending. It's so sad to me how many people's memes and the main way they use new technology and forums to express what they're feeling is about how they just want to like murder their boss and you know they hate their job and how you know they just want to close their eyes until the workday opens every day or how life is a never-ending stream of working so that you can get home and then you're too tired to do anything that's fun and then you wake up and you're mad that you didn't do anything fun the night before and it's not that I never have experienced that I think you sort of have to fail to find the things you hate doing before you're ever going to find what you love doing but it is sad that so many people uh, seem to go so many years, such a large portion of their life, just hating like everything about every minute of their existence. It's uh, it really is is not ideal uh, to say the least. To say the least, man, I I completely agree with you there. And you know, it's not it's not just my parents. There's a lot of people, as you said, that really do live their life like that, and it's very unfortunate. And you know, it it sometimes that's just the way the cards are dealt. Uh, my uncle was a cop, and I appreciate the heck out of him for what he did. But he had a countdown on his phone, on his home screen of his phone. He had a count countdown, retirement day, a retirement day clock for so the like the fact that I can complete that sentence. Right, the fact that I knew where that sentence was going shows that. And I'm not a genius for that. It's just like a cultural norm. And mm -hmm. that's kind of sad. But it, it, yes, of course. I mean, but also it was just crazy that he had it for a year. Now he's like the right. funniest person I know. And I love him a lot. And shout out to him because now he's retired and now he's happy. But there it took him 25 years to get there. So I guess that is what it is. But again, kudos to you for everything that you've done and, and everything that you're capable of doing. And I know you do a lot more than just the sports focus that we're going we're gonna to land on, obviously, here, the Love of Sports podcast. And I know that AI has a lot of different opportunities within sports and how it can play a role. But one thing I also noticed, and, and I don't know if this is me, I don't know if this is cultural lexicon or if it's just semantics, but I've noticed some people refer to computers being smart as AI and other people referring to it as machine learning. And I will be very honest, I don't really know what the difference is. So could you give us like a quick minute crash course in what kind of the difference is be between those two things? Absolutely, I can. And it's funny that you say that because there's always in tech, like a hot term that is really sexy and really largely misunderstood. Uh, like right before AI and probably still now blockchain is one mm -hmm. of those. And so like the joke that I tell is that, you know, you can go into any venture capital meeting and say you have an AI powered blockchain solution for something and basically leave with a blank check because it sounds amazing and no one knows what that is. Uh, the way I think about it is sort of this. Um, I'm going to not only define for you AI and machine learning, but first, uh, automation. I think it's important to understand the difference between automation and AI. Um, and I don't have a diagram in front of me, but I often have a slide. Uh, one way to think about it, I, I sort of use these nested circles, is that let's have machine learning in the middle, AI as kind of a bubble around that, and then automation as a bubble around that. So automation is all encompassing, within automation is AI, within AI is machine learning. And I would think about it like this. So automation is really nothing more than processing according to pre-programmed rules. So any like assembly line, you know, going back is automation. Henry Ford assembly line, once machines came in and humans were removed, that's automation. You're doing something without human oversight. And very commonly people will be 
automating things and referring to that as AI, and it's you know a little unclear. AI, artificial intelligence, is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities. So <clears throat> there are lots of rules-based systems that you could have for something, but when you look at something like the voice-to-text functionality on your smartphone or no, Alexa, right? Alexa-enabled devices are the classic example. That obviously is using pre-programmed rules. It detects different sound frequencies and patterns in your voice and converts those to words and then has an algorithm for like assembling different words and uh, generating meaning from those and then searching a database and then returning. It's very complicated, but it still is rules-based. Even if there's like a lot of rules and a lot of if statements, it's still rules-based. But because hearing and interpreting human language sentences and returning instructions is a human, you know, like skill, mm -hmm. we generally refer to that as AI. Now, machine learning, uh, first of all, is pretty much is a subtype, subset of AI. It pretty much is the only type of AI that is being used uh, right now. Anytime people talk about it, they're generally talking about machine learning. There are some other types, and I'm sure there will be more and things like that. But machine learning is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities and allow for iterative improvement. So the example I always give here is the spam classifier. You use Gmail, Outlook, mm -hmm. and at first it will algorithmically divert certain messages away from your inbox, right? Anything from like a Russian server with, you know, some specific keywords in it that are likely to be spam will be diverted to spam. But as you use Gmail, you're going to tell it, oh, that message you missed and that one was spam. And then someone's going to actually send you a message and say, check your spam folder and you're going to indicate not spam. And you want it to make those adjustments and right and make sure that it allows that sender. So iteratively, it's not just allowing that sender. It's looking for patterns that are recognized and using that to con continuously improve what you're doing. So generally, that's the landscape and that when people are talking about AI, for the most part, they're talking about machine learning. And you can just in your head replace it with predictive analytics or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And that is what they're talking about. If it's healthcare, they're trying to make some prediction about whether that tumor is benign or malignant, whether this hospital operational plan is optimal. If it's finance, they want to predict the stock price or what execution strategy will be optimal. And that, I think, is a helpful way to think about it. That's awesome. I will say machine learning sounds really cool. So I think well, let's keep machine learning over predictive analytics or or that. But okay, I really cool. do appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that explanation because it is always something to me that I have heard them used interchangeably. And now getting that nice breakdown, it's understanding that it's a, you know, what a, a square is a rectangle, a rectangle is not exactly. a square type of thing where machine learning is AI. But AI is not machine learning, not all, all AI is machine that is exactly I I, right. You, you got it. Hopefully everyone that's, out there listening gets it. The too. square rectangle analogy yes, applies. Exactly. That's the one I'm going to stick with. So I appreciate right. that, Lloyd. So let's jump into your story a little bit. As I said before, a lot of AI and machine learning, machine learning and AI, maybe I'll, I'll figure that part out again. I'm sorry. Um, goes into what you do with helping sports, a lot of esports, a lot of fantasy sports, and a lot of sports betting. Those are the three topics that I'm really excited to cover a little bit today. So Sharp Alpha Advisors. Um, I think I wrote down here advisory and consulting in sports betting, esports, and fantasy sports. What does that mean? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. And I, I think you know, understanding what that means, first of all, <clears throat> means understanding what are the set of commercial opportunities that relate to the legalization of sports betting and sort of the adjacent 
proliferation of daily fantasy and esports mm-hmm. and how that all interrelates. Uh, and then to layer on after that, we can get into, you know, what is AI, how does AI even relate? Well, it mm-hmm. relates by understanding how predictive analytics comes in, but specifically we can get into those use cases. So obviously, you know, we saw DraftKings is now a public company with a mm-hmm. six billion dollar market cap. Uh, and pretty clearly, uh, given that most states do not have legalized sports betting yet, that even the ones that do don't always have mobile betting yet, that even the ones that do have a market that is largely often uneducated or unacclimated or only filled with early adopters, uh, it should come as no surprise that purely in terms of what gaming analysts call gross gaming revenue, which is dollars of wagers taken minus dollars of wagers paid out. Purely in gross gaming revenue alone, uh, there is massive growth ahead of us. When people talk about the sports betting industry is an X dollar industry or will be a Y dollar industry by 2025, uh, they are talking about the gross gaming revenue, the aggregated gross gaming revenue across all B2C operators uh, in the space. And the numbers that you hear for a year like 2025 are 7 billion, 8 billion, 18 billion, maybe not like the aerospace industry, but from considering it was zero, you know, two years ago, that is pretty incredible. But what's more incredible, right? It was, it was but, zero two years well, ago. It, but it was I zero as, as relates to the legal yes, and regulated exactly, opportunities exactly. that result in taxable income. Uh, but yes, exactly. So, but let's just say, you know, it's a billion dollars in gross gaming revenue right now, and you have a 10x opportunity if you want to get involved in that. And certainly that's that's one area that we can talk about, but that's only one. What about all of the other industries? You look at a company like the Action Network. The Action Network doesn't take a bet ever. They're not a B2C operator. Their revenue is not counted in the gross gaming revenue statistic, which is cited as the size of the industry. They just got a $17.5 million Series B round closed. They have tons of revenue opportunities, and you can see a whole host of other things. Uh, You have apps out there, free-to-play prediction contests, engagement tools, uh, the stock market of sports, the CNBC of sports betting, the Bloomberg terminal for sports betting, the social network for sport, right? All these things, not to mention... Uh, what is going to be the number one public relations firm that services sports betting operators? What is going to be the number one uh, customer analytics company, right? Everything that exists, all the cottage industries, so to speak, that come up to support and benefit are important. And neither of those things that I described are even the most lucrative part of sports betting, which is, or actually there's two parts that are even more. One is the fact that cross-selling customers into online gaming and casino Mm -hmm. is very lucrative, not really relevant to this conversation. The other part is that as good as sports betting is at driving revenue, it is 10 times better at driving incremental downstream revenue by making sponsorship contracts more valuable, increasing eyeballs, increasing engagement, and all that good stuff. And what that means is that's why we saw, for example, Uh, The NFL, you know, hiring a VP of sports betting and all this stuff, right? Every investment bank is going to need to have someone with expertise, every PE firm, every VC fund, every league, every team is going to need to have a data. Like the number of opportunities are are massive and, and endless. And another way to just think about it is that chances are most of the biggest companies in U.S. sports betting history have not even been created yet. And it's just very rare 
to exist at a time where so many people are knowledgeable and passionate about an industry, especially because of the quotations that you put up before, which refers to this gray market that kind of primed everyone, right? It's not like sports betting is new, but the opportunity set is as if it's new and that mm -hmm. doesn't happen often. And so what I do is almost anything and everything that you could imagine in the service of pursuing those opportunities. For some people, they have a great idea uh, but have never made a pitch deck before, have never raised money, don't know the difference between issuing debt and equity, what is a convertible note, what's a safe, what's a cap table. And so certainly there's some you know times where I come on almost as a minority co-founder uh, instead of you know advisor would almost be mm -hmm. an understatement. And I'm on the Slack channels from the early days, helping build the pitch deck, helping with kind of all that stuff. Others, need more downstream things. Access to capital and fundraising is a very common one. Uh, certainly is not the easiest time, especially for pre-revenue, yeah. pre-product yeah. uh, startups that haven't proven product market fit and the like to, to raise, especially venture funding. But uh, you know, I have a Wall Street background. That's how I started my career. And certainly a lot of help with either financial projections or making introductions and uh, helping kind of things like that. Uh, but then there's some more industry related things. I think as you've definitely noticed and probably showcased on this podcast, although most customers just get a nicely packaged sports betting end product when they go onto their favorite site, the nuances and the interrelated like sets of stakeholders and landscapes and sub landscapes and verticals, like it really is crazy and beyond what most people expect because again, they're just the end user typically. And so Generally, just what I'm trying to do is there are people who don't realize necessarily the best path to monetization or the path to market. Uh, they might have an idea that actually is an absolute non-starter because of regulatory hurdles, but that with a simple tweak uh, would be more viable. And the classic sort of example of that that we're already seeing is you find a startup that has an idea. Um, for you know some market some peer-to-peer uh, -peer wagering mm -hmm. and they find out that uh getting reg getting licensed in pennsylvania costs 10 million dollars and has all these hurdles and so what do they do they they if they can't figure out themselves they reach out to some sort of advisor and that advisor says well you can structure your uh, app as a free-to-play contest not charge an entry fee give a real cash prize that is subsidized by your sponsor that you'll have who wants to pay for the engagement. You'll avoid all of your regulatory hurdles. You'll be allowed to prove your concept and your product market fit and acquire users. And then if it makes sense to get licensed, you can. And if not, well, affiliate marketing is very lucrative in this space and you can monetize your users that way. So that's like a very sort of plain vanilla generic kind of thing that people are undergoing. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the advice of that variety uh, is what's most helpful. And then there's all these other things, won't get into listing them, but there are people who wanna know, how can I use AI to enhance my offering? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I can sometimes save a call to a lawyer, you mm -hmm. know, with just some basic stuff, just from being in these conversations so frequently. So definitely wear a ton of different hats and uh, really it's sort of a whatever soup to nuts, A to Z kind of uh, consultancy on the, on the startup side. Uh, there's a whole host of kind of other considerations for, advising investors and uh, institutions and the like. But for startups, uh, I think it's just, you got a great idea, but how do you actually turn that to cash in your pocket? Uh, most people have never done that. And even those that have, it's, it's not easy to do. Uh, so helping in every which way and, and hopefully 
generally I only work with companies where I would be a user of the product myself. So I have that selfish motivation that if it comes to market, you know, I get an extra toy to play with or something like that. There you go, man. Yeah, it's never too bad when you get to help create the products themselves, or at least have a hand in creating those products. Because I think that is one thing, sometimes people are a little too close to the forest to see the trees, right? Just use another analogy that so many people think their idea is incredible. And then they start to put it on paper, and then they start to execute a little bit. And then they're pivoting here, pivoting there, to the point where it doesn't even really look like the thing that they started with. So having you come in in the beginning, it sounds like to help these, you know, ladies and gentlemen, figure out the path to, okay, how, what's the goal of starting this business? Well, to give a great product to help other people to add value, but also to get paid, right? We're all here to make some money. That's, that's the goal. And you're not going into fantasy sports. You're not going into sports betting to not make money. Let's be very honest with ourselves there. So I think that that's really interesting in how you're able to, from the beginning, see how this whole process works and, so how long have you been advising startups in this space, considering, again, you know, fantasy sports really, yeah, they've been around for a while, but DFS was really what jolted the industry some more, an influx of, you know, billions of dollars, let's call it. Sports betting, obviously, you know, we're only about a couple weeks away from PASPA, the, the anniversary, the second anniversary of PASPA being repealed. Um, you know, I'm here in New Jersey, so we did one thing right. Very happy about that. But so how long have you been doing this and, and what types of successes have you seen in these industries? Yeah. So your question I, I want to get to, but first make a note on your previous one, this one, you know, what successes and, and length of time, but previously um, you, you were, you were just talking sort of about how, you know, the way you see it, the opportunity set um, is, is kind of such that, uh, again, not only is it new, but that I can come in kind of as you described it and sort of save time and save these hurdles. Demo. Mm -hmm. And I think that the point I just wanted to make on that, and obviously this is sort of a plug for myself, but I would say this Why applies here, for, no, but, but just really that this applies, you know, to any startup that's considering bringing on a strategic advisor of some sort. Look, certainly consultants and advisors get a bad rep all the time because often the incentive structure of contracts is not handled properly. You know, a consultant comes on and gets a cash retainer and then they lose interest in your business because you're not motivated and they don't really have a reason to pick up your calls and you already paid them the cash. Uh, so certainly I would say, you know, I always make sure to go out of my way to make really bespoke contracts that are very incentive driven. If I have a client that can pay all cash and doesn't want to do an equity deal, I'll do a weekly retainer and say any week that I don't prove my value, tell me I'm fired. Like I shouldn't be able to coast and you shouldn't mm -hmm. hire anyone who does. But all that aside, assuming you're a founder who can do that kind of basic critical thinking and not hire someone who's just a total waste. I see so many people who are so passionate about sports. And I'm sure that's what you love about this podcast that mm -hmm. everyone you talk to universally underlying, they are passionate about what they do to the core. Uh, and there are very few industries that, in, in, that, that inspired that. And, you know, I, I think what that, what that just means is that you have a ton of people rushing in sometimes and, and starting ideas. And I see them cause I come in later on. Sometimes I see how much they spend on professional services and fees and consultants and lawyers and this and that. And then we got into this position and occasionally I'll see the ones that say, and yeah, we just need to finish this pending litigation to get these early investors at like all this stuff where a, a, a simple conversation, uh, maybe it's to an advisor, maybe it's to a lawyer that maybe cost a little more than you wanted to spend up front, 
would have saved you so much. I am mm -hmm. not at all about like selling myself or one person selling oneself into a situation where you're taking money or equity off someone's cap table and not delivering them at least as much value that to me is short-sighted and it doesn't even make sense for you over the long term because mm -hmm. you're not going to get repeat business. Uh, but that said, it's it's a very interesting issue. And I think, you know, I see you nodding in the point. So I just did want to yeah. point that out, I think is worth saying. I appreciate that. Your question about how, how long and, and what degree of uh, well, success. Well, now I have oh, other questions. No, oh, I'm please, sorry. I, everything kind of comes to mind and I always like to do this. Uh, you know, that's why no I said problem. we have some topics, but no, nothing nothing set in stone. So with that, I mean, how, how often do you see that these companies are, you know, how often are you the second advisor or the third advisor, or the fourth advisor? And again, along the way, having so many at what point is it you know how many how many voices are too many how many cooks in the kitchen you know you have one guy come in and he creates the menu and oh that menu kind of sucks it's too expensive get him out of there so we bring some other guy and then he's going to try and recreate it and so like how often do you come into these companies where you're the third fourth fifth person and it's just like well what what the heck are we working with we've had 18 different people's opinions this isn't even viable anymore at this point so first of all the main moral of the story of any answer i could give is that having the founder or the two co-founders or the three co-founders, whatever it is, being full-time employees and 100% invested, not only financially, but emotionally, mm -hmm. is an invaluable thing at the early stages because that it, there's no other remedy for what you're describing than having a founder or founders who are so gung-ho, 100% all in, they are doing the fundraising outreach and they are mopping up the messes at mm -hmm. night, the HR, the accounting, wearing all the hats, they know the business inside and out. They right, they're the decision maker and, and and all that. And there's very few replacements for that. And certainly, I'm sure you must you know happens all the time. You get two people who are co-founders. They decide that they want to take a risk together, and inevitably one fizzles before the other one does, just because startups are harder than everyone anticipates. And you know people are not identical to even their twins, let alone friends, let alone, you know, mm -hmm. random discord server, fellow entrepreneurs that they bring onto their teams. Um, I, I think, you know, you're asking, you know, how often do I come in and, and, and especially in situations where I come into discussions and, later and maybe not, is even there too many specifically? cooks? Yeah. Like maybe not just even just specifically, yeah, just in general, how often does that happen in these types of businesses? Um, what I will say is, is first of all, I, I, I think most people would be shocked if they realized, and this is for every industry, even, you know, medicine and military, which you'd think are like the most quality controlled mm -hmm. industries in the world, particularly when it comes to technology, but even when it comes to process, virtually every industry in the world runs on ancient technology that has had small patches fixed every time they've come up so that it's this crazy like labyrinth patchwork cobbled together, you know, thing mm -hmm. rather because incentive structures just never incentivize someone to be the one who starts out and starts new. That always benefits usually the person who comes after you. If you're a big CEO looking for mm -hmm. like your end of the year bonus, like who wants to deal with that? You'd rather take the easy road. And so whether it is, you know, the, uh, predictive models that are used to set the lines in Vegas, you would hope and think that they're all these amazing low latency MIT lab style machine learning recurrent neural networks. But the reality is, and certainly people are trying to do that, 
the reality is it's really more like some, you know, Monte Carlo simulation that someone built in the 70s and then someone in the 80s made like a slight tweak to it and then a slight tweak to that and a slight tweak to that and a slight tweak to that. Uh, so just generally, I, I think, and, and I said it's not only for tech, it's for process as well. As you get especially bigger and bigger with companies, this is what mm -hmm. happens. And that's why you have people talking about this concept of the innovator's dilemma, where as companies get bigger, they are not economically incentivized to innovate. The little companies are incentivized to innovate, and that's how disruption happens. The, the problem is that the sports betting industry is very resistant to small new coming players. There's mm -hmm. a massive regulatory hurdle, barriers to entry, trying to compete with DraftKings and FanDuel in terms of advertising or lobbyists or lawyers is, is a fool's errand. So uh, it remains to be seen how broken or intact that innovation mechanism is. For the most part, you look at a state like New Jersey, has 17 online mobile operators. Uh, points bet is the only one that really has a differentiated product with their points betting uh, product. For the most part, everything, all the betting mechanisms are the same as they've been in Europe. We just use American notation instead mm -hmm. of maybe decimal or fractional, but uh, the innovation from like a betting mechanism or vehicle standpoint ha has been minimal and the market has probably not incentivized it. So uh, you know, in general, it's always important to remember that it is weirdly and unfortunately common uh, to see this the case of larger companies. Now with earlier companies, I'd say again, quite unfortunately, uh, I get I and people like me get brought into conversations and often pass on the deal, the advisory deals, because especially at an early stage, you want to be able to pay people with equity. Mm -hmm. And I love taking early equity in companies where I have a formative role. But if there were two or three advisors before me and you have a pending litigation, it's no offense. It, it's just too much of a variable for me to work for free and hope that mm -hmm. not only do we get through this patch, but like that my stock options get liquidated in the future. It's way too uncertain. And so you can't simultaneously dilute yourself as a founder and participate in some either like cash burning or other suboptimal processes. And then wonder, you know, why you can't get a good advisory team in place. And to me, I'd say the answer to your question is yes. Generally, it happens all the time that I feel someone has come to me too late, so mm. to speak, where like we all could have benefited from talking earlier. But almost always to me, that's usually more a result of what I would consider like a pretty basic business oversight that, you know, a simple Google search for how to build a pitch deck or how to raise venture capital would have solved. Uh, so I kind of am giving you two answers. Like, yes, it is very common, but it also seems very avoidable, but no one really seems to be avoiding it. So maybe it's not as avoidable as I think. I, I don't know. Yeah, right. I, that that does happen. And you'd, you'd be surprised, um, you know, what you can get away with if you actually just try and Google search something. I mean, it's like the always, Unbelievable. It's, it's the, um, the, the, the kind of tired joke in technology. Well, did you turn it off and turn it back on again? Right. Does it work then? Like, it's so easy that some people, you know, it kind of just passes your head. And I've, you know, talked to many people about that. You know, my girlfriend's working from home and her computer's not working. Well, did you turn it off and turn it on? No. Does it work now? So yes. There's, okay, a, there's, a, there's a site. There's a site, or I don't know what you call that. One of my more uh, sarcastic friends introduced me to called lmtfy.com, which stands for let me Google that for you.com. And so when someone asks you an exceedingly 
obvious question. You go to that and you type the you type the search into a bar, and it creates a link that you can send to the person that shows a video of searching their exact question and then clicking on the first search results and the answer being there and it like packages it all nicely because of exactly this. And although it does, you know, frustrate me to no end sometimes, I don't mind that it makes me look smart when people ask questions and they don't want to Google it themselves. And I mean, not that this is common in my life anymore, but when I was a kid, I was like the person who would fix all the parents' computers in town, not because I was some brilliant wunderkind eight-year-old computer scientist, because like I knew how to use Ask Jeeves and you know to read the directions, and that was about it. And it's unbelievable how many people just don't search for their forget about searching this kind of stuff. You'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't. Oh my how God, many no, companies not. I've talked to who, let's say, they are going to be um, we are the Bloomberg of sports betting but haven't even Googled or went into the app store and searched Bloomberg for sports betting to see if anything else has come up. And like, yeah, I, you, you asked me if they come to me too late. I feel like I have people who come and have spent huge amounts of their own hard earned money and time and have not even done those basic. So when I mm -hmm. say that it seems these things are avoidable, um, I would give that advice to someone for free, you know, Google your value proposition and make sure no one else has a successful company using the same one. That's a free piece of advice I'll happily give anyone. And yet still, it's unbelievable. The very basic uh, kind of things that, that some people seem to miss. And perhaps I don't know, but but from some of the people I talk to, they think part of at least this comes from a misconception as to the difficulty or ease of raising venture capital mm -hmm. and that sometimes and i think this might have actually come from the show silicon valley i don't know but people use this phrase like oh the venture money was just flying around and wayne kimmel who i think you've also had incredible uh, guest, partner yes. 76 mm -hmm. podcast you know he knows venture investing more than anyone uh he he's he he is he gets it obviously as well as anyone he's so funny when he describes it and i love it how he's like where is this money that's flying around? Like, call me when you see it and I'll fly over and catch some of it. And again, he, he's better than I am when he does this, but it's so true. Like, I don't know where people seem to get misconceptions that, for example, you can claim in a set of revenue projections that you're going to make a ton of sponsorship revenue just because you think you can and not because you have like a data-driven or market research-driven approach to that or that you don't need a cost of customer acquisition and lifetime value in you know your one cheater uh to raise venture funding like where people get these misconceptions and where they assume people are getting six and seven figure venture checks without these things i don't really know where it comes from but it seems quite pervasive and hopefully, yeah, if the money is flying around, hopefully Wayne will bring me on that plane ride with him. Uh, he's a nice guy. So I think I made a pretty good impression when we did have our conversation. <laughs> Just in case anybody out there hasn't already heard that episode, make sure to go back. Check out Wayne's uh, James Santor, Chief of Staff. There's 76 Chief of Staff. I'm going to have that one coming out soon. And Jessica David, formerly of 76 uh, Capital. Now it's right, so you got, yeah, you got I'm everybody. I'm missing one. I'm missing Chad. So Chad, if you're out there listening. I'm coming for you, man. That's great. I'm excited to hear the uh, the episode with James. James is a great he's guy, awesome. good friend of mine, friend Such in the industry. He, he's but, a great um, dude. I'm excited to hear that. Thank you. I think that's actually coming out soon. I don't, I don't even know anymore. Awesome. Everything. Every day is just a day that ends in Y at this point. So we'll see what right. happens. So, hard to differentiate, hard to keep track. <laughs> it is what it is. But uh, so thank you so much for going over kind of, you know, how you're capable of helping these startups 
how you're really capable of even at the simplest, easiest manner, easiest stops, you're really able to add a significant amount of value. So the one thing I want to learn a little bit more of is the actual machine learning slash AI square slash rectangle aspect of it, especially in each of these three categories, again, going with fantasy sports and the DFS aspect, esports, and you know, them kind of, you know, that entire sector, that entire sport, sports games, they all grew up online. So that's always very, very interesting to me to see how far ahead they are. And then sports betting. So I guess we'll start with fantasy sports because it's probably my favorite out of all of that. How do you come in from the advisory standpoint? How do you try or how do you implement a an AI slash machine learning aspect to these companies to give them that advantage or to give them that sure. boost to get them to the point where investors finally want to start giving that money and the venture to capital money is flying in their direction? All right. Great question. And, and look, I got, you know, my start in you know, being obsessed with like sports stats and analytics uh, with season long rotisserie fantasy on there Yahoo. We go. Uh, Too I, many I, people I, don't play that anymore, man. I, it's all I, most people I don't now, think like... no. Look, it's funny. I, I, I started my, in my social circle, my small town. Uh, we did our first rotisserie league. It was six of us in 2001. Uh, so quite a while ago now I was in, in my, my parents' basement. And uh, it was rotisserie. And I remember the, the pitching categories. We had six pitching categories and three of them were earned runs, ERA and whip. And obviously those are all things that having the lower category, it, it, lower number is better. And so before anyone thought of having something like a player innings pitched minimum, we had one kid who just only drafted one relief pitcher, like Troy Percival or something. So he automatically won earned runs, ERA and whip automatically lost the other three, but had all of his other draft dollars because we did an auction to dedicate to hitters. And I remember just being like, wow, that's annoying, but that's so cool. And Respect. it's such a smart way to use what now has evolved into this whole multi, you know, this is now yeah. the industry is people, people doing mm -hmm. this. And um, I, I do so want to say, I don't, yeah. I, I don't like that guy. Not not the specific friend of yours, but right. I don't like that guy who does that. I mean, I understand I, what he's doing and where he's coming from, but man, come on, we're not. I, I think we game, were. Right? I think we might have been eleven years old at the time, but okay. yes, a little different. fair enough. A little now, um, but you're so. I think fantasy is the perfect place to start uh, because many of the applications of AI in fantasy, and this is from a business perspective. Obviously, mm -hmm. for all these things, from a consumer perspective, if predictive analytics is helpful, well then just as you would use something that predicts the outcome of a baseball game to make your bet, AI is going to enhance that. Just like you would use something to predict who's worth the most in your fantasy draft from a consumer perspective, it's kind of all going to be in, in that realm. Now for fantasy sports, from a business perspective, a lot of these things are actually not specific to fantasy sports and are just not even specific to the industry, but you'll see how they apply and to the others. Things like very simply, um, how do we target people with promotions uh, that we are sending out? How do you know what time to send a promotion? How do you know if you're offering a free to enter, uh, you know, season long competition with a million dollar prize? Should it be a million dollar prize or should it be two with $500,000 prizes or three or, or, okay, if the season's about to start and you're 93% full, should you open a new lobby or, or, or not? And whether it's daily fantasy or season long, like all of these questions about optimizing the mathematical incentives that drive the maximum number of users to, to your platform or to, to the platform uh, are going to be stuck. 
other things just like CRM capabilities. Everyone who has first party data that examines all of their CRM yeah. uses various types of analytics and dashboards to you know, say, are we advertising optimally? Should we reallocate from search to social to display and all this stuff? And again, you can see these are not specific to the industry. All of these areas where data are already being used to make decisions are, are very much aided uh, by, by AI. And I would say that, that for the most part, since fantasy sports and daily fantasy are much less regulated, uh, that's going to be the extent of it. There will always be other cool things. I mean, certainly uh, you can, you know, have an AI powered draft platform that uses mm -hmm. real time optimizations to enhance the user experience in any number of ways. Uh, you know, you can use augmented reality to superimpose, use a set, like all sorts of stuff like that. But I think once you get into esports and sports betting, you'll start to see where the real power and value is. And, and probably, uh, certainly if you're more active of a fantasy player than I am, maybe you'll see some relevant applications and how they're similar that I missed. So at the heart of any sports betting operation, obviously, is the odds on which various mm -hmm. propositions are wagered on. And where do those come from? Well, they come from predictive models. Companies like Camby and SB Tech, SB Tech now in the news because they reverse merged with DraftKings into a public company. That's what they do. DraftKings and FanDuel actually don't even set odds or move lines or anything. They are marketing and customer acquisition engines and incredibly efficient engines at that. Uh, but there are these other companies filled with data scientists that you know use predictive models to set the odds. And the, his, the industry standard has been something called a Monte Carlo simulation. And machine learning just offers some improvements on that. Um, most importantly, it improves the ability to offer accurate real-time, like in-play markets, and will hopefully soon allow what some people are expecting to be the next generation of sports betting products, which is, you'll hear some people refer to as micro-betting or micro-events. You know, Americans notoriously have a short attention span, so I don't want to say over, under, this guy, 73 receiving yards. How about just, will he catch or drop the next pass, plus 200, minus 350? Will LeBron be the next person to score? Yes or no? Tap on the screen, swipe left, swipe right, whatever you want it to be. And just like instant, you watch, you can come in and out. You don't have to know who LeBron is. You don't have to know how basketball works. You know, very easy, low lift kind of stuff. And you could order that, offer that as a lottery product if you wanted to. You could say, hey, whether or not LeBron scores next, I'm going to consider it to be a 50% chance. So I'll just let anyone bet at my mm -hmm. 110 and hope that other people see it as a 50-50 market and things even out. But if you want to actually have odds, if you want to do uh, outcome of the next at bat in baseball, very hot thing that, that people want to do, you really, if you want to do them accurately, need machine learning to have a robust enough model that can run in a short enough period of time. If you've ever seen a situation at a sports book, especially like a tier two or three sports book, where the odds that are updated in real time seem to maybe be incongruent or not really make sense or even give rise to an arbitrage opportunity. It's because they use the most robust possible model to set the odds before the game began, but to update it, it's not a fast enough model. And mm -hmm. so they have to really trim it down. And so sometimes that'll lead to disparities. And so just from an odds making standpoint, it's really helpful to have lower latency, more robust models that can look at more data. And we are just exploding in terms of data, right? We don't even have like player wearable data in this yet. No one's looking at Tom Brady's heart rate yet in their model for, for setting the odds. So 
when that happens, when every movement, you know, starts to have a data point associated with it, the scale of that data is going to require machine learning. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not only setting the odds, it's, you know, changing the odds in real time. You know, you see the lines move, the operator wants to get the risk minimizing proportion of bets on either side so that they don't have any risk mm -hmm. as to the outcome. Um, and obviously that's another thing that involves prediction. You, you can look at any given situation where you'd say, okay, if 60% of the money is on the home team and it's an AFC East team and it's Sunday with one hour to kick off, what do we predict the line movement needs to be in order to get this from 60 to 50? Again, you want to incorporate more data, do that in real time, do that with in-play odds, especially, um, you know, the draft was offering like, will the next player be offensive defensive? And the, the odds were swinging wildly because it's a low liquidity market. So, you know, orders are changing uh, because they have these real time things. So those are two of the main ways. Uh, but some of the other things just to quickly mention, you know, recommendation engines are, are a really hot thing. Netflix famously saves a billion dollars a year with their AI powered recommendation engine that tells you what to watch next. And that's why Netflix is so addicting. Facebook is so addicting because they know exactly what to serve you in what order and your infinite scroll to keep you scrolling. Uh, and similarly, you have companies that want to not send everyone the same betting promotions, not have everyone see the same home screen. But if you're a Giants fan and I'm a Jets fan, we should respectively see Giants and Jets promotions when we log on, even from, you know, the same geolocation. Uh, and then you have, you know, the stuff that everyone has to do in regulated markets, KYC, you know, your customer and AML, anti-money laundering, you know, sports betting and gambling has been a famous and popular sort of location for fraud and all sorts of crazy things. Uh, classic way, for example, that, that the people used to launder counterfeit money uh, that Vegas had to figure out how to deal with in the seventies is you'd counterfeit a million dollars, split it into two piles of 500,000, go to two different sports books, bet on team A at one, team B at the other. One of them is guaranteed to win. You pay taxes on that and you got your safe money that, you know, Uncle Sam has stamped. And so the managers of the sports books would start knowing if they got a new customer laying big cash to call up their other buddies because only there's a small network mm -hmm. of them and say, hey, did you get offsetting action? And they would catch criminals doing that all the time. But now the world is distributed and digital and obviously things like that you know, need to be uh, updated. Mm -hmm. So a lot yeah. of different, you know, moving parts, obviously, but uh, it's a very exciting time, I think, for, for a number of different reasons. Yeah. And as you said before, you made you made an incredible point that no industry ever starts at, you know, potentially trillions of dollars, right? Like nothing starts at this massive, massive number. Most things usually start at a very small number and get bigger, but because of the illegal nature of sports gambling in the United States outside of the city of Las Vegas, which again, I still don't have any idea how that got passed, who paid who off back whenever that was made. But I just think it's incredible. Keep going. Well, I was going to say, uh, I think the two truths I've learned about every industry, one is the one I said earlier, uh, just that they're all built on legacy operational processes and technology that have generally been fixed in patchwork fashion. The other is that you know, look, maybe there is like a uh, Illuminati type cabal of Freemasons and Skull and Bones people that really know each other well. And it's like 20 of them that control the whole world. And I'm just not part of it. And that's why I don't know about it. Or maybe this is my bluffing and I have a good poker face. I don't know. I don't know. But other than that, every industry for the most part is not controlled in like a weird authoritarian sense, but is very much influenced and an inordinate amount of the purchasing power and decision-making power is held by a smaller relative mm -hmm. to the size of the industry, 
a very small network of interconnected people. So in the banking industry, maybe that's a few banking executives, a few hedge fund executives, a few PE executives, uh, a few economists, a few guys at the Fed, a few guys at the SEC. You could see how they don't have to actually all be playing golf together, like whispering in trench coats in, you know, shady parking lots. But anyone who just gets to know people, you always have sort of an inner circle that you trust, the people that you respect, whose expertise you admire, whose ability to get the job done you trust. And just naturally, there's going to be an associative property where over time, there's like a very small group and it's, you know, invite only and it's mm -hmm. hard to get in. But once you're in, you're kind of in for like, like, again, it sounds very conspiratorial and it's not because it's so much more informal. It's just a reality that through whatever mechanisms, most industries are controlled by even backroom deals sounds shadier than I mean it to be. But if you think about it, if you were an executive of any sort in charge of anything very important, all things equal, if two companies had were competing for a proposal and one was your best friend and one wasn't and again objectively all things were equal of course you would give it to them especially mm -hmm. if there's a trust factor that you need to rely on and so i just wanted to point that out because you know you, you made that comment i do i think though that what it means is that your personal brand is very important and look if you're just in something to make a quick buck then that's fine and that's a different set of incentives but if you really want to grow and scale in an industry and be there for the long run you need to be respected. And, you know, there's this uh, debate of people these days, you know, obviously the political discussion gets crazy and you hear people talking about whether it's like inherently unethical to be a billionaire. And without getting into that conversation, I think one of the interesting things is it's really tough without like inheriting money or doing something really illegal to make a ton of money and be successful without at least being perceived as a good person. You can mm -hmm. do whatever you want secretly, but because of the handshake nature, uh, the relationship-based nature, the fact that yes, contracts are important, but you know your word is your bond and that means more than anything. Uh, to me, I, I think that especially for some people who get short-sighted during times of like explosive growth, uh, it, it's just important to have that long-term focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is very important and it's definitely something where, yes, of course, the industry does start at a very big number, but as you said, it's not, there are a few big players already. So any of these startups that are coming in, the ones that you are helping with AI, machine learning, with all these different aspects, whether it's on the fantasy side, the sports gambling side, still a lot of stuff they have to do. And they still have to be around for a very long time to make that billion with a B number, which I think yeah. is also very important because that's, again, you don't get into sports gambling or sports betting uh, to not make money. I think that right. part is pretty important. Uh, so another thing I do want to talk about when it comes to the gambling side a little bit, you were talking how certain aspects are done really really well before the game and then while during the game things kind of slow down and there's latency and it's not quite as robust i think it's the word you used with you know mobile gaming or mobile betting now being very popular and i think that mobile betting in new jersey is like absolutely crushing it compared to actually going to sports most recent thank you uh, um, first time yeah you know so it's it's insane and how easy it is too right like are you over 18 yep cool, here you go, have fun, um, which I think is a problem. And that's something else that, that we can talk about another time, but just the ease of use and the opportunities that come with it, how fast the internet already is and how fast it's going to be with something like 5G coming into play. How do you see some of these things increasing or becoming better with the invention of 5G, with the opportunities for internet speeds to just be, I mean, right now I can do everything I want to do. 
I don't know how much faster I need the internet to be, but apparently it's going to be faster and it's going to make things even more real time. What are the opportunities in the area, especially when referring to the AI and the machine learning aspect of sports gambling that you can see potentially coming in, in the very near future? Yeah, so 5G is hot. You're right. One thing I would comment on just in terms of, you're right, it is sometimes hard to notice. Like, you know, when, when we were younger, right, you, you had to pay eight cents per text message that you that you sent and My two cents for each that you like received. That, yeah. And maybe you could like buy a package of 100 text messages a month for fourteen ninety nine, and, and it's just crazy how much data transmission changes and it's hard to track. And one thing I would point out is, what you often don't realize is that as time goes on, things like pictures and videos are getting more and more high resolution mm -hmm. and larger files, and yet it takes you the same amount of time and actually usually less to download them, right? Like the movies that you used to download on LimeWire and your, you know, mo on your 256K yep. modem are a fraction of the size of a VR movie or a 4K or 8K now they're making, you know, movie. Uh, and so sometimes you don't notice it because your experience is, okay, it has always taken me the same amount of time to download the market leading level of resolution. Uh, but actually that's only possible with sort of an increase. So, so that's a, a, the mobile betting thing is, is really, really important. Uh, the 90% figure is probably elevated because of the, the, the quarantine stuff, but pretty mm -hmm. clearly based on data, the long run equilibrium level of New Jersey's mobile revenue that is contributed by, mo by mobile, sorry, is in excess of 80%, possibly in excess of 85%, but like irrefutably very clearly it's above 80%. And yeah, you could say some other populations are different, but, but pretty clearly I think that means, cause we can also look at other mature overseas markets where they attain a similar percentage uh, around 80%, give or take, uh, to say that that is kind of the critical, critical amount. And First of all, for if it would be different if we we're having this conversation at a different time, but a state like New York right now is missing out on all this tax revenue because although they have legal sports betting, it's only legal in four commercial and three tribal casinos, none of which are within two hours of Manhattan. Uh, so hopefully this is not related to the technology or bandwidth, although it feeds into the need for it, perhaps. Hopefully uh, people in the industry that are bullish and look at, you know, DraftKings stock price and stuff are saying, yeah, we're hoping that there's a faster path to regulation and legalization, you know, uh, a faster path to a larger total addressable market because more people have access via mobile uh, and stuff like that. Um, as far as the technology can look certainly in the scheme of things you know netflix takes up way more bandwidth than all the sports batters in the world so you know it's not necessarily as if uh the next generation of sports betting could not exist without 5g but first of all uh i know i'm always doing 67 different things on my phone and even if the sports betting app doesn't need 5g if all the other ones do and they don't have it that's going to slow down um but to talk about the importance of mobile yeah i mean look for I think many obvious reasons, uh, yes, the actual expected value of in-play markets mm -hmm. is generally not as good, but the social value of them is much greater because you walk into the bar, you don't have to be on time, you don't have to know what's going on. Uh, there's so many reasons to enjoy placing, especially a low to medium stakes uh, in-play wager, not to mention that although technically there's maybe more actual minutes of time that exist while the market is live before the game than during the game. If you were to weight each of those minutes by the number of consumers that are paying attention to it or interested in it, 
obviously that waiting would skew toward the game because no mm-hmm. one cares about the game until five minutes before uh, it starts and sometimes not even until after. Uh, so again, you know, generally we are all in the industry very frustrated with, you know, legislators and states that are getting caught up in just like nonsensical arguments and, and delaying the progress of, of mobile betting. Um, but I think it really is going to be critical. Uh, you know, somehow some of the early stage operators have gotten some people to be okay with and used to what mm-hmm. exists in in-play betting markets overseas, but would never fly on wall street, which is you go to place an in-play bet and you say, I want to bet 10 to win 20 and you press submit and you can't take the bet back, but there's like a pending little status icon, a time 12, 15 seconds at a maximum, usually sometimes longer where the operator can, you know, reject your bet, partially fill it, fill it, counter it. And like that would never fly, you mm-hmm. know, with high frequency trading or anything. And right now they can get away with that certainly. And they have to, because they don't have the low latency machine learning models we spoke about before that allow them to operate, you know, more fluidly. And so unquestionably, as soon as, and whether this is in two or three or five or 10 years is the part I can't say, but it still seems like an inevitability, first of all, that every state eventually has, or at least, you know, maybe not Utah, but every other state has some form of, you know, mobile digital sports wagering. Maybe a few will still require like an in-person signup, which is killing Nevada right now, but they, they do have that. Um, and that, you know, mobile is going to continue to be preferred, uh, particularly mobile and in play, you know, the combination of mobile and in play is just deadly in the best way. I don't mean like deadly to bank accounts. I mean, from a value proposition and maybe also to, to, for those goes who, both ways. Know, goes both goes ways. Both ways. Um, and you know, what that brings up is, you know, one thing we didn't get to is responsible gaming and responsible gambling is a, is a popular potential use case. Uh, for AI that brings up some interesting dilemmas where, you know, if imagine you're in a casino uh, on a bachelor party playing blackjack with your friends and someone comes up and says, hey, our AI engine decided that you're no longer gambling responsibly. We need to remove you from the premises. Uh, I don't know how that works, but certainly, you know, that's another Mm -hmm. use case to kind of proactively. But to go back, you're talking about the, the need or the role importance of 5G for mobile betting. And, and I was talking a lot about in play, but also mobile. Yeah, look, there's no question that uh, if you're a B2C operator, if you are a tech supplier that's trying to enhance the offerings of B2C operators, if you are an engagement tool that is attempting to capitalize on the mm-hmm. interest, like whatever it is, you absolutely you don't necessarily have to have a mobile app, but you should certainly have like a mobile version of your site and be ready for you know people needing whatever your offering or service is adapted to and perhaps optimized for mobile because mm-hmm. as we get older the people with more and more of the disposable income are going to be people who more and more grew up in a generation where you know smartphone is just standard knowing how to do this stuff and operate a touch screen is, is, is just standard um and, and again it might not sound like such a stroke of, of genius but the reality is it's really really hard not only for all big companies but particularly for big b2c operators uh, to innovate in this way. I mean, if you're DraftKings right now, even with all that cash, you have new states that are, are rolling out and you need to acquire customers and make sure you're compliant. Like even to deliver maximum shareholder value, you got to do these things and it mm-hmm. costs so much money and so much time. Uh, and that really does mean that uh, although I wish a lot of startups had a more realistic uh, perspective on what it means to have a startup and, and, and raise venture capital, 
the opportunity set for all these reasons that you're pointing out with these questions is just so enormous. And even if someone wants to say to you, look, I don't really count the gray market illegal dollars as like the market size, then you can say, all right, at the very least, we know what a lower bound for its future mature state is going to be like, mm -hmm. fine, I'll give you that. But we know in the future how big it's going to be because of how much consumer appetite there is. Exactly. I think it's it, the market is so huge, it's only going to get bigger. And, and just to a couple of your points, no, there aren't AI in those Atlantic City casinos. But me and my friends do try and take away a couple of our friends when they sit at that blackjack table for a little longer. If anyone out there is listening, they know exactly who I'm talking about. And we love them. And that's not that's the important part. But really, you're, you're completely right. Where Where is the ethical moral standpoint of something like that of ai coming in and say hey you've placed too many bets like you can't do that anymore the opportunity with mobile and live gaming i rarely have ever placed bets before the game starts because it's not as fun I, I don't know what it is i always think you know we all think we're just a little bit smarter and you know just as an example when ohio state was down like 21 to 0 against wisconsin in the big 10 championship game a few months back that was absolutely a time i was hanging out with a buddy and he had his uh, app I was like you have to bet Ohio State there's no chance they lose this game I think they end up winning by 14 but at that time it was like Ohio State my a plus seven and a half I was like a there's no chance they lose but b there's no chance they lose by more than a touchdown so take the bet he obviously won but again it's it's low to medium six it's 10 20 bucks it just gives you that extra little rooting interest uh to make it just that much more interesting and and I appreciate yeah, all your, you know, your funny insight on all this too thank you yeah the, you know there, there haven't been that many studies that can show this yet but most people's intuition is that once you're able to find this out you'll find that most people who make deposits into a DraftKings or a FanDuel account do not expect to ever take that money out no matter how long it takes them and and, and that they'll they'll freely admit that and and it's not because they're degenerate gambling addicts well maybe some of them are but for many it's because they have calibrated and I feel like it takes time and and I think this is something gamblers have done really well if they have figured out how to make it an additive part of their lives is okay for this game tonight. How much money am I willing to pay for the added enjoyment that I will get over that two or three hour stretch such that I'm happy. If I lose, I will consider that a break even. And if I win, that's just like a bonus. And there, I don't know the numbers, but there are a lot of people who, who are like that. And, you know, catering to those people is where the bread and butter should be. Certainly not getting people addicted. I don't know mm -hmm. anyone who deliberately is trying to monetize yeah. those customers. I understand why and where the gaming industry gets a bad rep from. And certainly there are a lot of headline grabby stories that come out of, you know, card counter gets caught and stuff. But the reality is, again, not having the numbers myself, my intuition is, is that most people who, you know, are you know, have steady careers and families and stuff that also, you know, bet even at what some might consider high stakes really are doing it in a way that, that they hopefully aren't continuing to figure out, but have figured out complements their viewing experience. You know, you enjoy the sweat, you enjoy the camaraderie, you enjoy the competition. Uh, and, and again, any winnings are great. It's not what you're relying on and any amount you lose is not going to be, you know, causing you ruin. Mm -hmm. And and I love it, man. And this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, we've pretty much covered everything that I had in my notes just through this natural conversation. So I really appreciate all your insight, all your stories. Um, make sure to check out Lloyd and his podcast. Everything will be in the show notes, all your socials, everything I'm going to make sure to put there. We've pretty much, I mean, you've pretty much given me everything at this point. Um, 
Except we really didn't talk too much about the podcast. Do you want to just give us like a like an elevator pitch on why people should should listen to it? Uh, yeah. So it definitely is not for everyone. I'll start with that. We uh, it's uh, my co-host is is one of the trustees of the five hundred one c three profit nonprofit company uh, organization that I'm the chairman and founder of, which is dedicated to ethical issues in AI. Uh, and basically, we explore ethical issues in AI but typically through the lens of either current events or often uh, more philosophical topics. So actually about to record a new episode right after this, where we're talking about what would it mean for a machine to have free will and does free will even exist or is it an illusion? So you kind of start with the AI stuff and then go to the philosophical. Uh, the, the most recent episodes we released were um, what is optimization as relates to AI, how is optimization used in artificial intelligence, and could you envision life to be one large optimization problem? So these are the kind of things we, we talk about. We definitely get really off the deep end and in the weeds of some either really esoteric sort of metaphysical or highly sophisticated technical concepts. But if that is uh, your thing, or if you're looking for uh, just, you know, some real mind expanding kind of juicy nuggets and things to uh, ponder. Uh, that is uh, at least what we hope uh, to serve up. We've had a pretty uh, steadily growing and at least loyal uh, audience. And uh, at the very least, we just enjoy kind of memorializing these conversations that we consider interesting, even if no one else does. Exactly. That's half the fun is just getting to have the conversations themselves. If other people listen, that's the icing on the cake. So Lloyd Danzig, Chairman and founder of Iced AI, founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors, and co-host of the AI Experience Podcast. Really appreciate your time today, man. Thanks a lot, Mike. Stay safe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Lloyd. As I said, really, really interesting. Um, I will make sure that everything is in the show notes, including his websites, his socials, and of course, the podcast he has. It's not sports specific, but it's still pretty darn cool. So please enjoy all of those. Please also give us a five-star review wherever you're listening, but very preferably if it's on Apple or iTunes. It's super, super helpful in what we're doing, and we're already starting to see some good things with these reviews coming in. So thank you so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of, and I appreciate some of yours. So I hope you make it a wonderful day.